0: Gracious God be with us today as we study the ninth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. We pray that we would learn something new today about ourselves and about your purposes for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, as we dive into Romans chapter 9, I feel like I need to offer a little bit of background because Romans 8 was so delightful. We spent two weeks on it. It came to such a wonderful end and If I were directing Romans as a movie, I would have told Paul to end it at Romans 8. We'd all go home feeling really good about life and about the church. But Paul cannot do that because he now has to return to the problem of John 1, verse 11, which says, he, speaking of the Messiah, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Um, Jesus Christ was born a Jew, but was not wildly embraced as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And this is a conundrum that Paul is wading through, a conundrum he's already been working through a little bit and one that's heightened by the inclusion of so many Gentiles in the church. And so a question that people might have asked at the end of Romans 8 is, If, in fact, there is no condemnation for those in Christ, and if we are dead to the law, as Paul has said, well, can't we just move past the Jewish people altogether? You know, weren't they just like a temporary carrier, a surrogate womb, you know, until Jesus was born, and now we can forget about them, and, um, you know, as if that's all in the past. And Paul offers a very emphatic no. We cannot do that. And there was a heresy condemned in the early church called uh, Marcionism. And the, the Marcionite heresy is essentially that the New Testament God is the God of mercy. But that Old Testament God is just a big old bully. And so let's forget about him and his people altogether. And let's just focus on this lovely God of the New Testament and kind of cut off everything that went before And some version of this heresy is always ever present in the church in a very subtle way, and uh, Paul addresses that in Romans 9-11 through and is trying to help us wrestle with what it means for Jesus to be the Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile alike, but to have been born a Jew and for the promise to be for what Paul calls his kinsmen according to the flesh. So let's start with Romans nine, verse one. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. My kindred, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, to them also the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is overall God-blessed forever. It is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are true descendants. For it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named after you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. For this is what the promise said about this time I will return and Sarah shall have a son Nor is that all something similar happened to Rebecca when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac, even before they had been born or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works, but by his call. She was told the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on the part of God? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth so that he has mercy on whomsoever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomsoever he chooses. All right, so Paul begins by just naming that he is in pain, and we know that Paul is conflicted. Something I want to point out is the combination in verse 3 and verse 4, where Paul names the Jews as being his kindred according to the flesh, But in verse four, he uses the pronoun they. He doesn't say we. And so they're both his kindred and it's a they. Paul is kind of wrestling with his own identity as a Jew, but one who has been baptized into the body of Christ. And so Paul says that he himself, you know, feels sorrow and anguish in his heart, that he wished that he were accursed and cut off from Christ uh, if it meant that his own people would believe. Um, now, whether or not Paul is embellishing here, I'll let you kind of decide that. But I do want to note that Paul is standing kind of in uh, a tradition and saying this within Judaism, whereby people say really bold things in the presence of God like that. Um, Moses says something similar in Exodus 32 after that whole golden calf episode. And I want to read a portion of that to you. Um, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you, Moses, I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? But now, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, God, blot me out of the book you have written. Now, this is a really bold prayer to God um, that Moses makes. Essentially, um, Moses has been the leader through whom um, the people of Israel have been led out of bondage in Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. Um, And, you know, they haven't been there very long. And here they are worshiping a golden calf. And essentially, God says, okay, you know, these people aren't faithful. Time to kind of get rid of them. And Moses, let's start afresh with you. And Moses says, no, absolutely not. You know, um, I'm not going to do that. If you're not going to be faithful to your people, then blot me out of your book. And, and I think Paul is standing in this tradition of Moses saying something very similar. Now, I do want to just name this. Um, if we were to take this passage as being too literal about how God is in God's inner life and God's essence, Uh, I don't think this would give us an accurate picture of God, right? God is not fickle. God doesn't change God's mind. God doesn't throw a tantrum when his people worship a golden calf and say, I'm going to quit on you. Uh, But I do think that this gives us an accurate picture of Moses wrestling with God and what Moses's heart is in the face of the people He leads not being faithful to the covenant. And and Paul, I think, is stepping in and doing something similar. God, blot me out of your book uh, if you're not going to be faithful to your covenant. But then, of course, verse six, um, Paul emphasizes that, in fact, God is being faithful to God's covenant. It is not as though the word of God had failed, he said. And then he begins quoting some of the scriptures and brings in. Jacob and Esau in order to help us think about the strange purposes of God. Um, Paul does this a lot more in his letter to the Galatians where he talks about um, Isaac and Ishmael and Ishmael was the one, the the child born according to the flesh, right? Because um, Abram took his concubine Hagar, who could easily have a child. Uh, But Isaac was the miracle child. Abram was 99 years old. Sarah was 100. And Isaac really was a biological miracle. And the whole point is, is that the covenant is not going to be based according to the flesh. It's not going to be based according to our own strategies, but rather it's going to be the product of something miraculous. And so Paul does that a lot in Galatians, but he's doing more of that here, kind of playing with Jacob and Esau. Now this verse where it says, I have loved Jacob, but hated Esau. um, This is not a quote from Genesis, but Malachi chapter one. And at the time, the people of Israel were being crushed uh, by the Edomites. And in scripture, the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And so in that context, right, it makes sense for the people of Israel to say, you know, God's on our side. Uh, God hates Esau. God hates the Edomites. God is faithful to the people of Jacob. Um, But what Paul is doing here is kind of using this verse from Malachi in order to try to wake us up to the strange purposes of God, Um, the strange purposes of God where the younger is sometimes counted as the firstborn. Where the rules of how the blessing is passed on are broken and changed because God is the one in control. And sometimes God works through the normative, you know, cultural rules, and sometimes God breaks those rules. And so what Paul is doing here uh, is reminding not just the Gentiles, but the Jews in his community that this is how God has always worked, that there is no injustice on God's part that God is the primary actor in this drama. And he really sums it up uh, with verse 16. So it, um, it being covenant faithfulness. um, so, So God's faithfulness to the covenant, it depends not on human will or exertion, and we could add the flesh into that. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. And Paul says something similar to this in Romans 8 when he writes, the spirit helps us in our weakness. This covenant from beginning to end has been about God's agency, God's will, God's mercy. The covenant depends on mercy, grace, and the purposes of God. As opposed to all the conventional rules that many people thought were themselves divine. And so that's how Paul begins Romans 9. And I think we should just kind of pause here to see how that first half of this chapter is landing with you. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? well, what is molded say to the one who molds it? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says, in those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they shall be called children of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, that the number of the children of Israel were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth quickly and decisively. And as Isaiah predicted that the Lord of hosts had not left survivors to us, we would have fared like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is, Righteousness through faith, but Israel, who did strive for the righteousness based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it's written See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All right, so Paul is taking us deeper into this idea that the covenant does not depend on human will or exertion, but on the mercy of God, and he does so by uh, referencing the potter analogy of Jeremiah 18, uh, which says this, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, come go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words, so i went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him you know i think the point of paul's analogy here is more of the same namely that we fit into god's plan we do not demand that god fit into our plan um you know, Philip was speaking about the wisdom of God, which is different from human wisdom. And Isaiah once said, My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. And in a sense, um, you know, Jesus was rejected by his own. Um, that is the conundrum Paul's writing about in this chapter. Uh, he was rejected by his own in part because Jesus did not fit their preconceived plan of what the Messiah was supposed to do. Uh, He was a different sort of vessel than they were looking for. And here Paul says, wait a second, um, you are the clay, God is the potter, and the potter has a right to make the clay as he sees fit. Uh, In verse 22, you know, Paul asks that question, what if God, desired to show his wrath, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath uh, made for destruction? Uh, I just like to remind you that here in verse 22, Paul says, What if? Paul is not doing systematic theology. He is not making a definitive statement that basically says God makes some vessels just to shatter them. Um, You know, whole volumes of systematic theology have been written on these verses that lead to a pretty strong doctrine of double predestination. And I don't think that we should read Romans nine as systematic theology. He says, what if, you know, what if this were true? Part of what Paul is asking us to do is frankly, to see ourselves as we are. We are not the potter. We are the clay. And part of faith is submitting to the potter's design about allowing ourselves to be molded and reacquainting ourselves with the wisdom of this potter who is shaping something good. But again, in verse 30, Paul returns to the conundrum. And here, I want to remind you that the word righteousness, diakosune, is best translated covenantal membership. And Paul is not here talking about some infused moral quality were given but about membership in the covenant and the conundrum is this the gentiles who never strove to be members of this covenant have attained it that is the covenantal membership based on faith but israel Israel. who wanted nothing more than covenantal membership um did not succeed in achieving it because they strove for it on the basis of law um, or they didn't strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works, and thus they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. What is that stumbling stone? Well, uh, Jesus is often uh described as that stone over which people stumble, but it's really the mercy of God, it's the wisdom of God, it is um the strange purposes of God who uh, is at work beyond um, you know, the categories through which, um, Paul's kindred according to the flesh had been expecting the Messiah to arrive. And, you know, whenever it says the Gentiles did not strive for it, yet they attained it. Uh, Israel did strive for it. They didn't attain it immediately. Um, questions of fairness pop up. I mean, my goodness. Um, We hate things that feel unfair. And the Bible just, um, you know, Martin Luther once said, uh, fairness is not a divine attribute. And I think what he meant by that is that God is good, God is righteous, God is holy, God is wise, but God is not like an accountant, you know, parceling out things uh, in direct proportion to what we deserve. Um, Jesus tells a parable of the laborers in the vineyard where they all work the same or they they all get paid the same amount of wages, but they work different hours. And again, Jesus tells that parable to um, really anger people and to help them see that God is not working on our understanding of what's fair. But notice behind this idea that things should be fair is a deeper belief that we're in control and that it does depend on human will and exertion. And so it's not that God is unfair. It's not that God is bad. uh, It's ultimately another commentary on that verse. It depends not on human will or exertion because fairness is 100% based on human will and exertion. And so Paul is pointing us to something better than fairness. He's pointing us to the goodness of God. And he is basically asking us uh, to think more deeply about that and deconstructing the, um, the categories, the categories that we're so used to projecting onto God that often make faith so difficult. Because, again, my ways are not your ways, says the Lord.